Oh God, with that prayer that David has sung, we confess we all need your cleansing. In the midst of this moment of national life, may the Word of Christ address our minds, engage our hearts, and may it be a word of peace. We pray in His name. Amen. One of the enduring images out of the Pulse Club massacre, for me, all right, for me, was that image of the 20-year-old girl, young woman from Philadelphia. Her name, Patience Carter, a survivor of the horrific massacre this week in Orlando, Florida. She was taken to Florida Hospital. That's our hospital, Florida Hospital in Orlando. And the administration has made a decision to bring some of the survivors out for a news conference, and so representatives of the media are there. And as she is wheeled out, one by one, they, they share their stories. She told of hiding in the bathroom and seeing the feet of the killer just pacing back and forth in front of that door. You can't imagine. You you just can't imagine it. Anyway, in those early hours of survival in Florida hospital, she composed a poem. And she read it. She read it right there at the news conference. I got a copy of that poem. And I want to read a, a line or two to you. The guilt of feeling grateful to be alive is heavy. Wanting to smile about surviving, but not sure if the people around you are ready. The guilt of feeling lucky to be alive is heavy. I'm skipping some lines. It's it's like the weight of the ocean's walls crushing uncontrolled by levees. It's like being drugged through the grass with a shattered leg and thrown on the back of a Chevy. The guilt of being alive is heavy. And then this girl bursts into tears, and this is the image that will be locked deep within me. I'll put the picture on the screen for you. There she is, Patricia Carter, a survivor. And what was that line of hers? Wanting to smile about surviving but not sure if the people around you are ready. Makes you wonder. How many of the victims? Forty-nine, one killer. How many of them were ready? How many of the living are ready? We live in a broken world, a fractured nation, and Orlando is evidence enough. In the space of hours, that city of sun and fun goes through tragedy after tragedy. You've been following the news. I'm not even going to rehearse them. And our hearts reach out to those who are suffering today. And if any of this were an aberration, our hearts would still reach out, but we would, we would breathe a sigh of relief. But every American knows this was no aberration. Every inhabitant on this planet knows that there is more to follow. How? When? Where? Who knows? 
the yellow police tape on the cover of today's worship bulletin is but a symbol of the mounting fear in this land of the brave and home of the free. But while we mourn for the suffering, there are still lessons for those yet alive. In fact, did you know that Jesus once spoke of a public tragedy not unlike Orlando? And his somber words are more than a commentary on our own massacre. And I want you to go there. Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I'll be in the NIV. Whatever translation you have is fine with me. Didn't bring a translation. Grab the, the Pew Bible in front of you. It's page 702 in the Pew Bible. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. We need what he's saying. Verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who, obviously in the crowd, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Thin-skinned, hair-triggered, tempered, Roman governor Pilate, turns out, had slaughtered a hapless band of Galilean worshipers who had brought their sacrifices to the Jerusalem temple. We know nothing about this event. And Jesus says nothing about Pilate, nothing about the Galileans, not a single word of condemnation for either the killer or the victims. Instead, He speaks to those who've heard the headline and have already drawn their conclusions from the news. Verse 2, He speaks, red letters. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? As I wrote in my blog today, the, or the Orlando Massacre, in it we are confronted with a stunning confluence, a convergence of huge social issues that have become incendiary talking points in this raucous national debate we're calling a presidential election. The slaughter in this nightclub has become graphic evidence that overnight, overnight, Seemingly disparate elements of our society can be tossed into the high-speed blender of public reaction and opinion overnight, literally. An event can change the face of the landscape we once thought familiar and secure. The debate over immigrants, Mexicans, Muslims, what does it matter? The place of the LGBT community in our nation. The use of firearms in America, the protection of religious minorities, minorities, period, the expansion of governmental incursion into personal privacy because the public clamors for more security. Overnight, suddenly, have you noticed? It's all up for grabs for the sake of protecting the majority at the expense of the minority who just don't fit in like we thought they would. And suddenly, overnight, we find ourselves closer rather than farther from Revelation 13's apocalyptic scenario. I'm just saying. We need to hear what Jesus is saying. Let me read verse 2 again. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, verse 3, but unless you repent, you too 
will all perish. Or, verse 4, those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, some, some tragedy in Jerusalem. Do you think they, the 18, were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, verse 5, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus' statement is absolutely unmistakable. Stay away, he warns. Stay away from any judgmental conclusions you might parse from the headlines of sudden loss of life or disasters. You know why? Because he knows us too well. The fanatical knee-jerk human reaction to mass killings or mass destruction and death is to consider them, come on, acts of God. Unless a tragedy has happened to you or someone you love, it is not unusual. Come on, let's just be honest. Let's quit playing games. It is not unusual for you, for the human mind to begin calculating why that disaster happened to these people. That we often, most often conclude it must be a divine judgment on their religion or their lifestyle or their wealth or their sinfulness, or their atheism, whatever, that we would even conclude at all is evidence of the fact that we as humans have this tendency to work out of a quid pro quo basis with life, with logic, and with God. You know quid pro quo. Latin, this for that. If you do this, then that will happen to you. We prefer neat and tidy quid pro quo logic to interpret all of life. In other words, you do this, God will do that. You do this, and that will happen to you. We never stop to think, and I hope if you just get one line out of this moment, this is the one. We never stop to think that there are thousands, even millions of humans who do this for whom that never happens. It never happens. So who are you to say, you do this, you get that? Jesus, very upfront, almost in your face caution, that we must avoid the quid pro quo capricious mentality that sees the judgment of God on everybody but yourself, on everybody but your own community. Beware. You live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Didn't he say somewhere else once upon a time, for the measure that you judge with will be the measure with which you will be judged? And one day, God forbid, tragedy will happen to you. And if quid pro quo is your logic in interpreting life, you are going to conclude, my Lord, I must be under divine judgment. There must be some great and hidden sin in my life. God, what have I done? Why have you done this to me? Job's friends fell for that neat, tidy bit of bankrupt and hopeless thinking. The Jews of Jesus' day embraced it. Even Jesus' disciples believed in it. Hey, yo, time out, Master. Look, this guy, who sinned? This blind man or his parents that he was born blind? Quid pro quo? And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him, end quote. I'm reading a book right now by Sigvi Tonstad. He sent it to me. It's a 
powerful book. Title of the, it's his newest book, God of Sense and, and Traditions of Nonsense, in which Tonstad seeks the character of God and a better theology. Those are his two words. In this world of great suffering, in this world of great controversy, and the story of Job is huge to his to his pursuit. In fact, it's the artwork on the cover of his book. This line. This line, I'll put it on the screen for you. Elihu, you remember the Job's comforters with friends like these who needs enemies? You remember Elihu, the youngest. So he's the guy that comes last. Tonstad is talking about Elihu. Put that on the screen, please. Elihu, one of Job's comforters, represents the discrepancy between theological dogma, this is the way it is, we know the truth about God, and human reality. Elihu represents the tension between orthodoxy and empathy. Let's quit trying to parse this thing for Pete's sake. We got suffering human beings on our hands right now, which is precisely Jesus' point. How dare we, who are so certain about who God is and what is truth, judge those who have been thrown into great suffering and anguish when the godlike response would be to hurry to these people, put our arms around them, and tell them, You are still loved by us, and guess what? You are still loved by God. To judge them as justly deserving the judgments of God is to tragically pass judgment on ourselves. Verse 5 again, Jesus, I tell you no, but unless you repent, and by the way, it reads this way in the Greek, unless you repent and keep on repenting. I'm talking about all you that survived and had nothing to do with this tragedy, Jesus says. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. David Redding wisely reflects on these words of Jesus with these words. Put it on the screen for you. Reading, writing, we cannot condemn any groaning Job just because nature or human nature picks on him. There often is, okay, here comes a little caveat. Let's, let's insert it right here. There often is a strong relationship between suffering and someone's sin. And frequently accidents can be seen coming long before they arrive. We hit the pause button right there. So this last week I'm visiting with a friend of mine in Niles. And he's telling me about a friend of his who smokes three packs of cigarettes before noon. Three packs before noon. I mean, go figure. So if this guy one day contracts lung cancer, he'll have no right to shake his little fist in the face of God and say, why are you punishing me? <laughs> no, we saw this coming. You did it to yourself. Redding makes the caveat, and it's worth making here. There are times when suffering is, in fact, the result of my actions. But keep reading. But the volcano, you see that line on the screen? But the volcano, like the summer shower, rains on the just, quoting the Sermon on the Mount, rains on the just and the unjust alike. And even if nature on the rampage works for God, it does so in mysterious ways we cannot possibly understand. In any case, who are we to talk? Now, the emphasis here is mine. Any tragedy is a judgment on the bystanders as much as on those it struck. End quote. Jesus says, back off. Back off. Good counsel. But back to our not-so-friendly Roman procurator, Pilate, who incidentally, listen to this, who, who incidentally perpetrated the same sort of massacre in 36 A.D. 
on hapless Samaritan worshipers on Mount Gerizim. He just slaughtered them as they were offering their sacrifices. And when Caesar gets the phone call, it's come up and, and shh for Pilate. He's withdrawn. This Pilate only appears, get this, only appears in the New Testament in connection with two incidences. This one in which he mixes the blood of these Galileans with their sacrifices, and one other time when he will mix the blood of a Galilean with his sacrifice. It's eerie. It's haunting, the parallels. I mean, Jesus, who's speaking about the Galileans whose blood was mixed with their sacrifices by Pilate, will himself be the Galilean whose blood Pilate will mix in just a few days. In the first bloodbath of the Galileans, that would be plural, Christ warns us away from any thought that God was judging the Galileans for their sins. But in the second bloodbath of the Galileans, singular, the Bible boldly calls us to the conclusion that God was judging that Galilean for our sins. That's what's embedded right here in this ancient, profound Prophecy of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, 600 years before he was even born. These words, I want you to find it, please. I want you to read it in your own Bible. Isaiah 53, go back in the Old Testament. 600 years before the Messiah is born, this depiction of how he will die. Is this the language of judgment or what? Let's find out. Isaiah 53, drop down to verse 4. Surely he, the suffering servant, the Messiah, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we did, yet we considered him punished by God. You know what kind of language that is? That's a language of judgment. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Keep reading. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity, the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Peter comes along and says, I'm going to summarize that entire Messianic prophecy with this line, He, Christ, bore our sins in His body on the tree. On that tree, He was judged for my sins. He died for my salvation, and that includes you. The shining truth of the Galilean's death is that He was judged. He was judged in my place and yours. Those classic words of desire of ages. I mean, does everybody know this quote or what? I'll put it on the screen for you, this, this stirring book on the life of Christ. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which He had no share, that we might be justified by His righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was His, with His stripes, quoting Isaiah 53, we are healed. So here's the question that begs to be asked. Go on. Go on. How do you pay back a love like this, huh? How do you pay back a love like this? You really can, of course, and we all know that. But very interesting. 
just moments, hours before Jesus himself is massacred by Pilate in one split second. It happens so fast you almost miss it. In one split second, Jesus drops a huge clue as to how to pay back a love so great. Because Jesus is just hours away from Calvary. He's sitting with his little band of followers there in the temple as this street, this, this river of worshipers flows by them. You see, it's afternoon prayers. Everybody's hurrying to the temple for afternoon prayers. And everybody's flowing by a big, large, gold-plated box that every worshiper knows what to instinctively do when you pass the box. It's the offering box, and so people are reaching in to the folds of their garments and dropping a few coins in. And, of course, the wealthy, rather ostentatious sort of way, making sure everybody sees this, drop their bags of coins. In that river of humanity streaming to worship, when nobody was looking, a bent-over little widow slips out of the stream, approaches that box, and then making sure nobody's watching, reaches into the folds of her drab garment and drops in two tiny little pieces of coin. been embarrassed. She's preparing now to slip back into the stream of worshipers when she hears a voice lifted up so intentionally loud that it's as if he, this voice is speaking to everybody, including her. Hey, guys, yo, you, did you just see that widow? Wow, did you see what she gave? I want to tell you something. She gave more than everybody who's come to church today. And do you know what? Do you want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because everybody who gave today has more where that came from, but she gave everything she had. Desire of Ages said she gave her food money. She's going without eating now. The little widow hears it all and looks back to see who this voice is, and when she does, the dark eyes of the Messiah and hers for one split second lock. And he smiles at her and he nods. Heaven is very impressed. You know why? Because hours later, heaven will make the very same gift. And they will pour out the last penny in their treasury to save this rebel race. Heaven knows all about giving your all. A Little Widow, this little series, The Widow Factor. Isn't that amazing? Here, you and I have been sitting here, and we say, well, 10% here and 1% there and 2% there and maybe 3% there. And we're saying, well, you know, look at, look at, how little do I need to give? Come on, tell me, just tell me, how little do I need to give? And here comes a woman who reflects a God who reaches into the folds and drops everything in that box. How do, you, how do you thank a God who's done this? 
Probably you do it the same way the widow did. You just live with the same mind. And you copy the same heart. And you give it all. Oh, he's not asking to liquidate all. He just says, may I have it all? Would you surrender it all to me? Today, you and I get to, I can't believe this, we get to kneel at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, guess what? I'm giving it all. You can have all of me for whatever reason, whenever you want, today. Oh, we got to sing that song. Come on, Josh. Let's sing just the first stanza. All to Jesus I surrender. Just give us the opening chord, please. All to Jesus I surrender. We'll put the words on the screen for you. You know this, don't you? You know it? Come on. Give me that, uh, what's that opening note? Mm. can we offer? What can we give? But our all, it isn't much. It isn't much at all, but it's all we have. So today as we kneel at the foot of the cross and remember the entire treasury in a single gift, oh, draw from us the confession we just sang, in Jesus' name, amen.